I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears, in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. We've recently relaunched the podcast into a new look, or should I say new sound, format, in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australia right now. In this episode, we speak with Australian film and TV producer, director and writer Tony Ayres. Tony's many credits, in many roles, include acclaimed projects such as The Slap and Nowhere Boys, Glitch and Clickbait. And hosting this conversation about everything from diversity and representation to Ayres' journey from Macau to Melbourne and the global media marketplace is senior culture writer for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, Carl Quinn. Thanks, Conrad, and welcome, Tony, to the studio. Hi, Carl. Um, for, for the listeners who don't know the Tony Ayres story, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's like three or four of them, um, <laughs> what's, uh, what's your potted biography? How, how, do you, how do you sort of introduce yourself to people? Um, it's contextual, I yep. guess. I try to keep it as short as possible. Yeah. I say I'm a filmmaker. Uh, you know, say if I'm running into someone, I sort of say I work in TV. Right. And um, uh, if I try to impress someone, I say, uh, I've worked in TV for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you were born in Macau, right? Yeah. I came to Australia when I was three and a half, and my mother met an Australian sailor, and she followed him here with my sister and me, and um, then she promptly left him. And I grew up in the back of Chinese restaurants in Melbourne, mainly, mm-hmm. predominantly Melbourne. And um, I mean, we this had is a, what the sixties, seventies. This was the sixties, yeah. yeah. And we had a pretty itinerant life. I think there was one year I went to seven different primary schools. Wow, we were just, you know, it, we were kind of technically, I, I guess you'd call it underclass. Yeah. Uh, my mother worked in restaurants, or she didn't work. We lived in housing commission flats or often in the spare room of friends. Uh, there was one point we lived in the storeroom of a Chinese restaurant. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like... Handy if you needed a napkin, but apart from that, I'm sure it wasn't that great. <laughs> well, there were, there were takeaway containers and um, <laughs> I did learn how to make a, a game of checkers out of Coke and Fanta lids. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like I, I was, you know, fairly ingenuous in those days. Yeah. Um, uh, ingenuous? Is that the ingenious, right I ingenious. think. Ingenious. Yeah. No, I wouldn't use that word either. <laughs> I was practical. Yeah. Um, we probably were ingenuous, but yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So, so that was my childhood. And then uh, my mother died and I moved in with my stepfather and we lived together for a few years and then he died when I was about 14. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was kind of like orphaned at a fairly early age yeah. and... Just through a series of fairly fortunate circumstances, I ended up going to a pretty good school. Mm-hmm. It was purely geography. I lived on the right side of the highway, yeah, so right. I ended up in a good school. And I did well at school, and I ended up getting a scholarship to the ANU where I studied, and I think education just basically completely changed my life. Yeah. Like I, You know, when I was at school... The, the greatest of my aspirations was being a bank teller, you know, because <laughs> really? we never had money. So just like the idea of having money seemed like really, you know, 
And where are we going to get a lot of money but <laughs> yeah, in a bank? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I thought about that for a long time. And yeah. then, um, you know, at university, I studied literature and philosophy and I got very involved in student politics and sort of the art scene. It was Canberra, so everyone knew each other. And it was a whole new world for me. And, and that was kind of what opened my eyes up to the possibility of a career in the arts. Mm. And from there, I just kind of, you know, uh, went to art school, went to film school and started working after film school and have been fortunate enough to keep working ever since. Mm. A lot of that childhood experience you put into the film Home Song Stories, I mean, talking about it, I get a sense maybe it's still, it's still some of that is still difficult. I think that, you know... It, I guess I'm at a point in my life now where you sort of, you know, you reflect back a lot. And yeah. recently there was a screening of the Home Song Stories at the Melbourne Film Festival, and yeah. I saw it again. And I, I just got reminded of my childhood and where I came from. And sometimes that's quite a good thing to do because, I mean, these days I have a you know, very comfortable, very privileged life. Yeah. And it's just good to remember that there's a sliding doors version of me which didn't have access to those opportunities. Yeah. And that's kind of humbling and it's also, it also makes you feel very grateful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Watching it, did you feel did you feel any of the emotion of the childhood again or does it feel distant to you now? I was more distant when I was making it. Like ah. When I was making it, I was just so concerned about overtime and um, <laughs> like really right. I didn't have so, I, I so even from time. the beginning you were a producer as well <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to think about trauma or this is about my mother dying or this is about my sister you know trying to kill herself and all this stuff like big dramatic stuff I just thought how do I get through the day what shots do I have to drop yeah. and uh, so watching it again many years later I kind of it was a very pleasant reminder of, you know, that I, th I think the film is good. Mm. And also, you know, like it, it was, you know, it, I found it moving in a way that I probably didn't at the time that I made it. Yeah, yeah. It would have been, I, I imagine, easy to become pigeonholed as somebody who made, uh, who told ethnic stories. Um, <laughs> but you haven't done that. I mean, you, you've, you've sort of found a place i think like like few australian filmmakers in the mainstream of storytelling in this culture how does that happen was that a, was that a deliberate process or has it just been sort of stumbling from one opportunity to another or <laughs> i think that's much more close or it was never like a deliberate strategy i'm going to start out on the margins and then get really mainstream yeah. <laughs> i started out just doing stuff that i knew like t telling stories that affected me and like i would argue that i still do the same thing mm. you know like i still find things that affect me or move me and then try to work out how to tell that as a story that will affect or move other people mm. so that's my kind of basic st strategy for how to, how to be an artist. Mm. But in the early days, I think that the things that I was doing was based around, you know, my childhood, which was very dramatic, or around questions of sexuality, about being gay, and, you know, like those identity questions yep. were things that, um, you know, like I went to as a source of uh, subject matter. And then as I went along, I mean, you can only talk about those things for as long as you can talk about them, but you mm. know, eventually you, they run out of steam. You've done it once. And so I started looking at other things, and I was fortunate enough to be able to move into television at a time when, you know, just ahead of the curve, just yeah. before televisions in Australia really started taking off. And so I was able to work on great 
book adaptations like The Slap and Barracuda, Seven Types of Ambiguity, The Family Law. So, you know, I've been given lots of opportunities. And mm. I, I figure what's happened is that I was making the things that I was making and I was trying to make them as well as possible. And I got some recognition for that. Mm. And each thing then led to another possibility opening up. But I, I mean, weirdly, I don't really even think of myself as particularly mainstream these days, you know, like, or maybe the mainstream has shifted closer to what what I'm interested in. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that's probably the latter in that there are so many, I mean, you know, the streaming model has, certainly the Netflix model has opened up the idea of a multiplicity of smallish audiences which together become a very large audience right and that's you know that's one of the great things of this age of streaming which makes a different kind of storytelling possible not mainstream perhaps but of a, a you know of a scale that it becomes economically viable yeah my friend fenton bailey who does rupaul's drag race mm-hmm. called it the aggregated niche mm. So yeah, when nice you, term. Yeah. Yeah. So when you add all those little audiences up globally, they yeah. they, they kind of it kind of amounts to something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I certainly didn't mean to suggest that you'd sold out, Tony. I mean, by, by talking about mainstream, I merely meant to suggest honestly, you found um, decent sized audiences which allow you to keep working, which in this country is no mean feat, right? I guess that's why I, I say by bragging that I've been working for a long time because yeah. it's really hard to work in this industry. Like, it's a, it's a tough business. Yeah. I mean, the Australian film and TV industry is often talked about as a sort of cottage industry. Do you think that's accurate? I mean, is it fair to use that term? I've used that term myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a small industry, yeah. so that that's kind of where the cottage comes from. I think we also punch well above our weight. Mm. When you look at the number of Australian creatives who have had success overseas, you know, I think we have more movie stars per capita than than any country in the world. We've got incredible craftspeople. We've got incredible writers and directors. Mm. So that's a sign that, you know, there's something really good and healthy about this industry. I I think that the work here is generally way above the standard that you would expect given the budget constraints that we have. So even though we are a cottage industry, I think we're a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. Um, You've had, I think, a fair deal deal of success in partnering or looking towards overseas markets and and producers to be part of what you're doing, right? I mean, and obviously that's become increasingly a model that people are exploring. And I would say, you know, the sort of... uh, the, the ultimate expression of that was perhaps Clickbait, which is a show developed here, Australian IP, made in Australia, but a lot of people think of it as a foreign show. <laughs> talk, talk me through that. I mean, do you think of that as an Australian show? Do you think of that as a, a global show that happened to be made here? Do you think of it as an American show that happened to be made with Australian creatives? What, what, what's your way of framing that? I would always describe it as an American show that was shot here. Right, okay. Um, because... That's basically what happened. (laughs) The show is set in America. I mean, whether, you know, it technically fits into Australian or or American, you know, because Christian and I are Australians. Mm. So That being Christian White. Christian White, yeah. yeah. So so it's a hybrid show. Mm. I I was able to persuade the studio and Netflix to shoot the, the show here because I thought that we could do a much better show if we shot it here than if we had the same budget and tried to compete against 70 pilots filming in 
uh, Vancouver mm. or or against 40 pilots shooting in Toronto. Like, it would, would have been very hard to make that show in Canada, which was the other option. Right. Uh, it wasn't a big budget show, but for an American show, it wasn't a big budget show, but yeah. for an Australian show, it was a, a good sized budget. Yeah. What was his mental state when you last saw him? He is the victim here. Has Nick ever been violent? Could Nick Brewer's video be a confession? What aren't you telling us? Do you think that's increasingly the model that we're going to be exploring here? I'm hoping that we have a range of models here. Like, uh, as a creative, I'm kind of interested in the things I'm interested in. So, you know, it's a story or it's a feeling or it's working with some people. You know, those are the things that drive me. So I tend to be a little bit borderless. So I've got shows that I want to make in New York. I've got shows that I want to make in Wagga. You know, like Mm. I'm not predetermined by where it is. So I'm kind of hoping that 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 is a possibility for, for me as an artist. How that works in terms of an industry or policy, I think, is is kind of more complicated because I think increasingly we are much more global as a screen industry. Mm. I think that the streamers are probably the most obvious version of that. They, they take a show and usually they take it for world rights. Yeah. So they'll buy the, out the entire world. So the old territory-by-territory territory model has less of a stranglehold on our industry now and consequently things that you make say even if you set it here you've got to be conscious of how it might play Mm. you know in other countries especially if you're at a certain budget level yeah right um i mean it used to be once upon a time that those territory by territory rights were how producers of a show actually made their what they call blue sky in the business right yes. that's where you made the serious money yeah that doesn't happen anymore i live in melbourne it's always been gray i don't think i've ever seen blue sky <laughs> <laughs> well i mean with, with the with the streaming model and that sort of increasing move towards people you basically create something you're selling at once that's it yes is anybody getting rich in, in this business anymore i think that's controversial yeah i, th- I think it's much trickier now for producers i don't think there is that kind of blue sky element i also think that you know there are all kinds of deals that are being done that are i I think there's battles within the industry Mm -hmm. well according to the trade papers there are anyway and so about about trying to work out how to make the distribution of profit more equitable Mm. well i guess the question is are the streamers healthy for filmmakers? I think that there is a plus and a minus with mm. with almost everything, really. For me, the plus side is that, you know, there's a different kind of market now. And if you can persuade a streamer that your story can, you know, be significant in an aggregated niche kind of way, mm. then you might be able to tell a different kind of story to the stories that are in mainstream or broadcast uh, TV. So that's a plus. I think the business model is complicated and tricky. Mm. I'm not great with business model stuff because, I mean, I, can, I can't even read Excel. So <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm the, the world's worst producer. <laughs> right. I, I always need someone to uh, explain budgets and things to me. And <laughs> Really? <laughs> Seriously, yes. But, I mean, you, you have been a producer for a, lo- a long time. A large part of your career, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. you've you've 
a lot of the things you're associated with, you are the producer rather than the director. I mean, it's... Uh, but you're a creative producer, right? I'm a certain kind of producer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to out myself. I am not very good with numbers. I'm not like I work with a whole team of people yeah. who are great at, at talking budgets and ultimates and all of that kind of stuff. I, you know, it's not my thing. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of the the sort of the filmmaking, the auteur, I guess? I mean, do you think that the auteur or the, the creator, creative writer, producer, director is as important as perhaps the Australian film industry has tended to imagine it is? Or do you think that the process is inherently a more collaborative space, that you make things as a team? What's, what's your view? My own process is much more collaborative. So I think that there are people who are genuine auteurs and who need to control the whole process and they have a particular vision and a way of working which is their, their way of doing things mm. and, and, and I, th- I think all, all power to them. That's not my process. So in general, I can only really talk about the way I do things and I would say that everything that involves another human being is a collaboration, mm. you know. <laughs> We collaborate with the people who set up the trucks. We collaborate with the runners. You know, like we all have to work together. And I think it's healthier to try to do that in a way which is respectful and as equitable as possible. I think all of those things are really important. And I think that the kind of top-down structure which auteurism sort of naturally imports also has its limitations as well because if you know if if it is one person's vision then then how does that person see outside of themselves which sometimes that they will need need to and that idea of the auteur is predicated on this kind of idea of genius Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. i guess my take on it is more that I don't really care if I have the best idea, but I see my job as knowing what the best idea is. My, yeah, my, right. my job is trying to protect the thing and to understand what the project is and to guide other people to do their best work. I guess I see myself as a rudder. As a rudder? <laughs> yes, right. rather than an auteur. I'm yeah. a rudder. A rudder. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm under the keel just trying to guide in, in the right direction. That's a nice way of putting it. Is that is that kind of what a showrunner is i mean we, that's the way i would be a showrunner <laughs> yeah right. Right, right okay what are you most proud of in your in your career wow it's like was, which of your which children which, do you love most? <laughs> I can tell you the children I hate. <laughs> uh, no. Go on. Uh, no, I bet not. No. <laughs> Scarred for life. <laughs> I, I feel very fortunate. I've had re- some really amazing experiences. The Slap was incredible. That was my first TV drama. Clickbait was a great experience because that was the first time I'd worked on something that just went off globally. Mm. You know, I was really proud of Nowhere Boys, this kid show that I worked on. Mm. I really loved it. Everyone who knows us has forgotten us. Dad, can I help you? Mum? So then if we don't exist, we don't have to follow any boring rules. And working for children was great a great experience because they're such an appreciative audience mm. and the composer cornell wilchick 
still gets messages from all around the world about his score. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved being able to make the home song stories because it was about my mother and my sister and me. And so it was a, I was able to talk about that part of my childhood. I write these stories about my mother, trying to understand her and all the things that she did. Or perhaps to punish her. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really proud of Stateless, you know, because I feel like history is a contestation. Like, you know, we are all sort of clamouring to say this is what happened. Mm. And for me, Stateless was recording a part of Australian history which would have disappeared. And so it, it's a kind of cultural artefact. It's there for perpetuity now. And in future, if people want to know a bit about our country's fairly disgraceful uh, response to the whole refugee dilemma. Mm. You'll have stateless and there will be other works, you know, subsequential to it, which will describe what happened. I mean, that's also why we did fires. It was important to mark, uh, you know, an event of national consequence. Mm. Both of those are, are narrative fiction as opposed to documentaries. They could have been told as documentaries, I suppose, to some degree. Why fiction rather than the, the documentary form? For me, what f- drama does is it helps an audience see into the point of view of another human being. Mm. It, I, th- I think it's a humanist project. Mm. To do that, you naturally need to be empathetic, you know, like the, the process of projecting yourself from someone in your living room or in the cinema to the, the, being that person on the screen is of its nature an empathetic act. I think there's something really healthy in encouraging people to empathise for lives that they don't understand or experience. I mean, that's why I think that representation matters because, you know, if you see and understand and experience the life of someone who's not you, your own worldview broadens, you know, and your ability to then feel compassion for that person expands, I think. So mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, we all, as a species, we understand each other, we communicate through uh, storytelling, you know, like a sentence is a story, you know, like, uh, and that that's our basis for human communication and I think that what's you know drama is a a way of working at people at an emotional level in a way which say other forms are possibly not as suited for Mm -hmm. Um, there's a sense that we're in a golden age in in Australia, in terms mm. of production, certainly in the in terms of the volume of production and mm. so on, we're possibly nearing a peak in terms of our ability to yeah. to accommodate production. But at the same time, we've we've lost neighbours, which is one of was one of the major training grounds in uh, in our industry. I mean, do you, do you think that's a significant loss? I mean, I, I think about you know something like I mean, even a clickbait with what eight episodes. Yeah. I think you're not going to get the opportunity to be a trainee director on that show, are you? I mean. No, there's a talk to me what, about about that, and do you think that um, this potentially poses a problem for the health of the industry? Not not necessarily neighbours itself, but something like that. I think there is a real and significant gap in our sort of production output, which is a show like Neighbours, 
uh, great shows like Patch the Rafters, Offspring, you know, All Saints, you know, the the, the basic re- longer returning series, mm. which gave younger directors an opportunity to, to direct, gave newer writers an opportunity to write. And the skill set that we're in actually requires practice, mm. you know, like it actually requires you just doing the work and putting the hours in and learning and getting better. Like that's just the nature of what we do. It's it's like any kind of elite athlete or a- any kind of highly skilled area of expertise. So unless you give people those opportunities, you know, I don't know how they grow and develop. So my counter to that is that I always try to do, say, a TV show, a children's TV show every uh, year or every couple of years because children's TV is an area where you can give people an opportunity. And I think that that's really important. Mm. Uh, I would certainly argue for the need for that kind of long-running returning drama to be part of our television landscape and audiences tend to like it you know they tend to you know like watching australian stories on our screens Mm. the numbers though are are like so different than they were aren't they i mean like you know neighbors was playing to if it was lucky 100 between 100 and 200 a night in its towards the end of its uh its life here where it had been doing you know, even before it moved to the digital channel, it was doing 600,000 before, you know, it hmm. used to do well over a million. I mean, like, those numbers have just dro- dropped away. So it's it's like, how do, you, how do you sustain those kind of things? And if there's a need for them, w- what's the model to, yeah. to make those happen? I think that we have to be careful about the way we look at numbers because the way we view things is mm. completely different now. And I do think that something like drama tends to be viewed in catch-up. And, yeah. and when you sort of look at the aggregated numbers for shows on the ABC, you know, that include Catch Up and then they are quite decent in, you know, they're not that far below what they used to be. Mm-hmm. And also it's a far more competitive world now because we have all the streaming services. And and so I don't think that we can make the same, you know, comparisons that, mm. that we used to make. I think that hopefully there there will be an argument which will allow for a certain kind of work which is probably at a lower price point to continue and that will justify a broadcaster making the investment in it. Mm. I guess what I'm, all of this I'm trying I'm trying to get to do you think we're in a healthy place for Australian film and TV right now? I mean on the surface of it never been better, right? But but I would I would suggest that there might be a few things that we should be a little bit hesitant about. My concern for the moment is that there is a systemic flaw, which is that if we only do the kind of top end, kind of bigger budget, more elite work, there is going to be a gap in Mm. about five years uh, when, you know, one generation moves on and another generation has to emerge. Who are those people going to be if they haven't had the opportunities to to learn? So so that's probably my biggest concern i think that also i'm a big advocate for children's tv i think that it's really important that we keep making it you know not only for practitioners but for audience growth and Mm. for getting children inspired by seeing australian stories so all of those cultural arguments you know which i think are important are things that i would support as well like i do think children's tv is crucial 
having more drama on our networks is also a, a crucial part of the infrastructure of our industry. So that goes to the question of regulation. Uh, it's, yep. it's a live topic again. Yes. With the yes. change of government. Yes. Do you think that there should be more stringent or more demanding quotas about Australian content on the streamers? On The free-to-air argument, I presume, has been lost now. That's that's done and dusted. don't think it's going to be revisited. I think that any small industry needs some form of regulation to survive. And you look at you know comparable industries all around the world. There are very few market-based screen industries in the world that I'm aware of, you know, America. Mm. Uh, but they have a kind of... America like and that's probably about it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but we have to find some way of regulating the market so that we, we can actually exist as an industry. I absolutely believe that. Mm. Between, you know, you're, you're entering the industry and now... Would you say that Australian Screen is a is more representative? Has it become a more diverse and welcoming place? And if so, has it become enough of that, or is, it, is there still a long way to go? I remember when I first started out, uh, I was at film school, and there was one other Chinese guy, mm-hmm. and we used to get confused for each other all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and we looked nothing alike. <laughs> It was just ridiculous, but people, people used to confuse us, and uh, I mean, it didn't, it didn't bother me because I thought he was quite good looking, so I didn't mind. But um, but uh, you know, it obviously bothered him because he left the country. Oh really? <laughs> okay. But uh, you know, for the first couple of decades of my career, counting the other Chinese Australian sort of writers, directors producers like there would have been a handful Mm. of us and we kind of all knew each other we were all supportive of each other but it was a very small uh, group of people Mm. and I would have said that up until even five years ago was pretty much the same in fact I was fairly cynical for the most part of my career I thought that uh, representation was you know just a word that people used every now and then to describe their project <laughs> right but n- nothing that was actually going to really change things and you know like a, a a film like rabbit proof fence or something would pop up and then there would be a bit of noise around representation and then you know three months later it was or three weeks later it was gone hmm. and i saw that happen over and over again including on some of the projects that i worked on mm-hmm. and I think think that what I've noticed is that over the past five years or so, there has been an explosion of change, and I think it's been really significant. Like, just in terms of the identity group that I'm most connected with, which is the the kind of Chinese-Australian or Asian-Australian group, I just know so many new writers and directors and people working, like, compared to when I was kind of... You know, growing up, it's it's really changed. It's changed for the better. I think it is a really significant change. As to what is enough and what isn't enough, I think we're a work in progress at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see how we measure up. In you know, when when this work starts to roll out, it'll kind of hap- happen in a couple of years, and it'll be interesting to see whether there are any measurable statistics that will actually chart whether you know what's happened I'm, I'm going to ask you about casting right authenticity and casting this is mm. this has been a you know a very big issue over recent times and 
so around trans trans actors, um, mm. I can I can absolutely see the the validity of the argument that says there are so few roles for trans people. If there is a trans or a trans character, mm. it should definitely be played by a trans actor. Where you know that makes sense, which mm. in most instances it would. Or say uh, um, the Scarlett Johansson Ghost in the Shell kind of scenario. This is an Asian character. Why would you have a white woman playing her and so on? I can see that there are arguments. I mean, I'm interested to know what you think about those instances or or any others, but is there a point at which it ceases to apply? I mean, can only a gay actor play a gay character, for instance, in which case should should history claim back all those uh, straight characters that were played by (laughs) gay actors over the years? You know, it's kind of complicated, right? Yeah, it's a variation on the standpoint argument. It's Mm. a sort of, you know, a continuation of it. And again, I would kind of say that there is a multiplicity of identities in any one person and character and identity are not necessarily the same thing. So identity is part of a character, but you need, say, when you're casting someone, you need a person who is, say, fierce or or gentle or trustworthy or untrustworthy or you're generally tending to look for those characteristics which is kind of why they're called characters Mm. and where their identity sits in that is part of it but i wouldn't say all all of it and sometimes again it's situational there are some characters where the identity aspect of that character is at the forefront of the story so I, I would tend to favour people from that identity group in that casting. Mm. And there are some characters where that is not a significant, you know, like it's it's a throwaway line in the character bio. Mm. And, and then I would sort of give that less significance. So I, th- I think that it, it's a little bit horses for courses. Mm. If you're making... A TV series or a film that is really about the trans experience, then clearly it would be very valuable to have an actor who knows that experience. I, th- I think that's the argument. I mean, I think the counter argument to that is that no one person represents a whole group. Mm. And, w- you know, we forget that sometimes mm. in, in the way that we talk about these things. We, we um, forget that just because I'm Chinese doesn't mean I know everything about Chinese culture. In fact, I'm like a terrible Chinese because I, <laughs> I, I'm technically a banana, like yeah, <laughs> yellow on the outside. But I was, you know, like I was brought up totally Western. Yeah. And so everything that I know about Chinese culture, particularly in my adult years, they're things I've had to learn. Yeah, so right. you're like, you're not born with this kind of manual on how to be. And so I think that those things are are things that we need to weigh up when we're when we're making casting decisions mm. and i think that you know it's part of a discussion which needs to happen about how we do things and why we do things but i i think it's hard to have a hard and fast rule could you see a scenario in which you would cast a non-trans actor in a trans role at this point in time or do you think the grief that you would cop for that would outweigh <laughs> any benefits of it being the best actor for the role I think that if I was doing 
a trans story and it was important, then I would definitely be looking at all the trans actors. To, yeah. Definitely. And I would I would certainly be favouring them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are you working on now? <laughs> Can you say? I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say because then something would definitely be happening. <laughs> right. I'm in this kind of development sort of heaven slash hell where I'm just working on a whole bunch of things and maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. You know, it's a difficult industry and, you know, one thing you learn is that it doesn't get easier. Yeah, right. (laughs) The older you get, the more you learn, it doesn't get easier. Every project is a battle. You have to will things into existence and even then, you know, it takes a little bit of luck as well. So I'm just kind of doing what I do. What's a typical turnaround time for like, I've got an idea to it either getting up and being made or being like, okay, it's just not going to happen? Somewhere between 18 months and 10 years. And 10 years, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yes. I have worked on projects that have happened just like that. Yeah. Like fires. Yeah. Um, So fires was what? What was the turnaround on fires? 18 months. 18 months from idea to finished product? Yeah, to on screen. Okay. And I have worked on projects that, have taken many, many, many years and had many iterations. And I mean, one thing I would say for myself is I'm pretty persistent. Mm-hmm. Like even a show like Stateless, that took us six years yeah. to finance. Yeah, if I believe in something, I don't stop believing in it. So, I'll, you know, I'll just keep giving it a go. Mm. You started making movies. You have, I think you last made a feature film in what, 2015? Yeah, that was yeah. a while back. Yeah. Yeah. Is... is Cinema no longer speaking to you in the same way that the, the smaller <laughs> screen does. Oh, um, no, cinema speaks to me. I, I just um, haven't had the call for a while. I said, movies are complicated to finance. Mm. They're, they're they're hard, and I sort of work for an American studio. You know, like I work for NBC Universal, mm. and my deal is for television. So, so I tend to prioritise TV projects. I would love to make another movie if mm. that was possible, but. They're, they're difficult beasts. And they take a long time, right? They take a long time. But it sounds like everything takes a long time. <laughs> yeah, everything does, but um, movies in particular are labours of love. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you get to make more of them, and I hope you get to make many more TV shows as well, Tony. It's Thank been you an absolute much. pleasure chatting. <laughs> Thank you. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carcatzel. Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.